Let us pray together. When Moses saw your glory manifested in the bush that burned but was not consumed, Lord Yahweh, you told him to take off his sandals, for he was on holy ground. Surely this chapter brings us to holy ground. Help us to approach the truths in it humbly, with reverence and awe. Overwhelm us, we pray, with Christ's glory and his majesty, as his three disciples were overwhelmed, that he might be lifted up and exalted in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so much is still going on here. You might be helped by a quick review of, uh, as you might say on TV, the story thus far. Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good to have that still echoing in our head. The Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he made this confession, Jesus blessed him, named him Peter, the rock, and said that on the the base rock of his confession, he would build his invincible church. Even the gates of Hades would not swallow it up in death. Peter would be given keys to the kingdom, and he, as first among the other apostles, would be given the power to bind and loose affairs of the kingdom for that church that Jesus would be building. And then he immediately announced, Jesus immediately announced that he must go to Jerusalem, which makes sense because that's where the Messiah sets up his kingdom. However, the rest did not make such good sense to them. He must go to Jerusalem, and there he must suffer many things at the hands of all the leaders of Israel, and he must die, and then he must rise on the third day. And when, well, I'm sure when all the apostles heard this, they were absolutely stunned, and certainly Peter was utterly stunned, and he rebuked Jesus. He took him to himself, and he rebuked him said, God have mercy on you. And he said, though Jesus had just said, this must happen, Peter says, this will never happen to you. And on that, Jesus rebukes Peter, whom he just called rock, but now he calls him Satan, saying that he does not mind the things of God, but he's minding the things of man. And then Jesus explains what discipleship is, that any man who wants to follow him must deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. And then he reaffirms, as you've got in your outline, 1627, he reaffirms that the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, then he will repay to each according to his activity. Well, now there's, there's a puzzle for you. He's going to die, but he is going to come back and set up his kingdom, he says. Well, yikes. What can you say? Yikes. Double yikes. Where do we go from here? What's the next thing that's going to happen after that? Turns out the next thing after that is something utterly glorious and utterly unexpected. And that's where we go today. Verse uh, 28 of chapter 16 through verse 13 of chapter 17. So first let's turn to the sight of the king's glory. That's the first thing we come to. It's the subject of Matthew 16, 28 through 17, 2. Roman numeral 1 in your outline. The sight of the king's glory. That sight is promised in 16, 28. And here we get to one of the most challenging verses to interpret in the gospel. And a, a very interesting point of teaching, as we'll see. Jesus says, Amen. And since Matthew didn't translate that, I don't. It's the Hebrew word for truly. 
of a certainty. Amen, I say to you that there are some of those standing here who definitely will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, first, let's begin just looking at it at a glance. I find it really helpful to, take, to look at something with an aerial view before we go in and look at it in detail. Obviously, this is riffing off of verse 27, where Jesus had said, the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay to each according to his activity. That's just what the Old Testament says, basically. But then he says, amen, I say to you that there are some of those standing here who definitely will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But this returns to the theme of the gospel. The theme of the gospel of Matthew is what? It's the kingdom of God and Jesus as the king over the kingdom of God. And, and so right here, Matthew's singing the, sing, the theme song of his gospel. Jesus, the king of God's coming kingdom. But what is he talking about when he promises that some won't die before they see him coming in his kingdom? What does that mean? Well, now let's take a closer look and endeavor to understand what Jesus meant by that. Studied and understood. So, of course, many theories have been advanced as to understanding Jesus' word. Um, one is that he was just wrong, that he expected to come shortly, and the apostles expected he'd come shortly, and he was mistaken. And that interpretation is wrong, and it's silly, and it's lazy. <coughs> it just takes one obvious reading, reading of the verse and then completely ignores the context, ignores the fact that this is in a gospel that was read for centuries and the thought that, well, nobody figured that out until now. Uh, this is all silly and it's just lazy if somebody selectively... It's, it's, a, it's a striking thing, of course. A person who says this will read the gospel thus far, read of Jesus' virgin birth. Well, I don't believe that. Uh, read of his healings. Well, I don't believe that. Read of him stopping the storm. Well, I don't believe that. But when they read a verse that looks to them like Jesus in error, oh, he said that. That part I believe. Just the part that helps them feel better about not believing in Jesus. So we lay that one aside. Uh, believers have come up with the explanation that when Jesus says uh, they will see him coming in his kingdom, he's speaking of the resurrection or of Pentecost or of the ministry of uh, the apostles or even of the fall of Jerusalem. But I think that there's a, a much simpler and better option that fits into the context so very well and also is supported by actually the commentary of the Apostle Peter, as we'll see. And that is that he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, the very next event that we read in this gospel. And let me show you why. The first is, let me remind you, that verse numbers and chapter numbers, true or false, they were part of the original text. False. That's correct. They were written later. They're very helpful. We use them, but sometimes they're badly mistaken. I would say this is one of the worst chapter divisions in the Bible. The chapter division should not fall here. And unfortunately, many modern translations don't help because they ignore the next word in Matthew's gospel. After verse 28, the next word that he wrote was the Greek word chi, which means and. And if you're holding in your hands a new international version or even the more recent New American Standards or even the New King James or the Christian Standard Bible, you don't have an and there. They decided that, that was bad English. Well, maybe it's bad English, but it's in the Greek text. And it shows that to Matthew's mind, shows us that to Matthew's mind, he was continuing that what happened next 
flowed from what Jesus had just said. That and is very important. Uh, The Legacy Standard Bible and others uh, have it as they should. The next word is and, and there's no chapter division as Matthew wrote it. He simply wrote this promise and then said and after six days. And then he relates the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Notice just some of the fulfillments, and you can use the translation I've given you in your outline. Verse 28 says, I say to you that there are some of those standing here who will definitely not taste of death. And then in the next verse he says, and after six days. Now this is unusual for Matthew. He doesn't usually give precise uh, time notes like this. So why does he do it here? Well, he does it here so that we will tie it in with what Jesus said. Six days after he made this promise, this is what happened. Matthew's telling us that this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. He said, some of those standing here will not taste of death. What does verse 1 say? After six days, Jesus takes along Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain privately. What does that stress? Some of those standing there. Three of them privately. And then he says, they will not taste of death until they see. Does the uh, narrative translate what they, uh, does it emphasize what they see? Yep, look at verse 2. And he was transformed in front of them. In other words, they saw this. It was right in front of those three. Transformed in front of them. Verse 3, and look, there were seen by them. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in his promise. They will see. Verse 3 says, they were seen by them. Verse 8, and lifting up their eyes, no one did they see. The same verb, except Jesus himself alone. And then after the whole thing, what does Jesus call it? Verse 9, and after they were descending out of the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell no one what, what? You have seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So, This is what he promised they would see, they saw in the mountain. And he says they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, what what do they actually see? They see representatives of the law and the prophets talking with Jesus. We'll talk more about that later. But Moses, giver of the law, Elijah, leader of the prophets, they're speaking with Jesus. And then God the Father himself speaks and affirms Jesus as his coming king in whom he's well pleased. Uh, If you read the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, uh, all three synoptics tell this same story, and they also connect it to, uh, to the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. This is the fulfillment of his promise. But even more convincing of all, look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and see the commentary by one of the men who was there, the apostle Peter, first named of the three. 2 Peter chapter 1, and beginning in verse 16. He says, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. So he's about to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it, and he refers to that as a a sight of the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. Although a different word, a word that means his kingly presence, it reminds us that Jesus promised that they would see him coming in his kingdom. And so Peter, referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, we did not do this following cleverly devised myths, 
but being eyewitnesses to his majesty. Epoptai. We saw it, just as Jesus promised. You will see this. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter sees this as a foreview, a a glimpse of Christ's coming, of his second coming, of his return in glory to set up his kingdom. His commentary underscores the fact that this is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. So let's look more closely then, letter B, at this promise fulfilled in verses 1 and 2. And we'll bring out more detail about this so that we can all understand it. The promise fulfilled, 17, 1 and 2, and after six days, Jesus takes along Peter and James and John, his brother, and he brought them up into a high mountain privately, and he was transformed in front of them. And his face shined as the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So first, who did he take? Well, he took James and his brother John. Those were two of the inner three. But there's a little detail of Greek grammar that emphasizes that he took Peter. Um, Won't bore you with it just to say it's the only one that gets the definite article. So that's why I put a comma there in my translation. He takes along Peter and James and John, his brother. There's a little bit of an emphasis on Peter. Why would there be an emphasis on Peter? Because of Peter's horrible gaffe that we just read about. Because of Peter rebuking Jesus and correcting him and needing to be rebuked by Jesus and called Satan and put back in his place behind Jesus. And yet, and let me add to that before I say the next, uh, he, he, he made a, a terrible gaffe. He's about to make another gaffe. Even there on the mountain, he's going to say something that later he has to say, I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> he himself has to say that about it. And yet, Jesus takes him alone. Yet, Jesus brings him up for this experience that only three experienced. Not only did Jesus not expel Peter because of his terrible gaffe, he didn't even demote him. He was still among the inner three. He's still named first among the the inner three. Now that's something that's worth thinking about, Christian friend. That is worth thinking about. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Jesus who was so patient with Peter and who bore with Peter despite his folly, despite his sin, that's the same Jesus we follow. And the Jesus who treated Peter with such patience and tenderness is the Jesus we look to, the Jesus we depend on to treat us with patience and tenderness and long-suffering as well. We can't disappoint him. He already knows everything about us, and yet he set his love on us. God knows we try to disappoint him, and yet he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He's committed his love to us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? The more I go on, the more I treasure that, and the more I thank God for his patience. I look back at my life, and in some, in some frames of mind, all I see makes me cringe and regret and sorrowful, and yet Jesus stays with me. Yet Jesus doesn't give up. And as I say of myself, I say of you, Christian friend, he's the same Jesus for all of us, patient, loving, impossible to surprise or disappoint. He's committed his love to us, 
And as John 13, 1 says, having loved his own and who are in the world, he loves them to the end. And so he does for us. I praise God for that. What a wonderful Savior. Amen? What a wonderful Savior. Charles Spurgeon says, the three were elect out of the elect and favored to see what none else in all the world might behold. So that's who he takes. Where do they go? They go to a a mountain. They go to a high mountain. They go to a high mountain privately. This is an exclusive experience. And we're probably meant to think of other similar experiences in the Old Testament, such as Exodus 19, where Moses went up into a high mountain to meet with God and received uh, the Ten Commandments. And we go into a high mountain, and here we see Moses again, but he's not the star of this show. In Exodus 34, Moses went up and had a vision of God. Well, there's a vision of God now in this story that involves Moses too, but Moses is not the star of the show. Uh, And so in Exodus 24, when Moses meets with God, the cloud is on the mountain six days. Interesting to note. And here they go up on uh, on this mountain after six days had passed from Jesus' promise. So that's where they go. And what do they see? Well, what they see is they see a transformation. And mostly I want to lift out the meaning of this just by using scripture. I'll let there be a, uh, I'll reach for a divine commentary on the meaning of this. Now, Luke gives us an interesting note on what's going on here. Luke tells us that this happens as Jesus is praying, Luke 9.29. And it happened that while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. He'd taken them up to pray, and he was praying, and as he prayed, he was transformed. So what is prayer for Jesus? Prayer is communing with his Father. It's communing with his Father. And that just throws my mind to another prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays just before his betrayal. And in John 17, verse 5, he says, Now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the earth. And what do we see here? A peak of that glory that he looked forward to returning to. The Father shows us a peak of the glory that Jesus had with the Father with whom he's communing from before the foundation of the earth. But there's even more to that. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 27 Jesus said, for the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father. And that's what we see here. And it takes my mind to John 1.14, which I think is John's reminiscence of this uh, event, which if, if I understand it rightly, that means that all four gospel writers refer to this event. In John 1.14, you know the verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what do we see here in Matthew 17? He's praying to the Father. Suddenly he's glorified and the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved. Yes, it's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John's commentary on what we're seeing here. Helps us understand what we're seeing. Uh, Paul has a commentary of sorts. If you were to turn to Ephesians, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Perhaps familiar words, but uh, in this connection, perhaps we've not thought of them. Philippians chapter 2, and we will focus on verses 6 and 7. 
Philippians 2, he, Paul had said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, he says, although existing in the form of God, just notice that word, the form of God, he existed in the form of God, which is to say, if you could have seen him before the foundation, you would have been looking at God. Actually existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. The same word again, by being made in the likeness of men. So we have two forms, as it were, mentioned here. The form he had before his incarnation and the form he took at his incarnation. Both Greek words are the Greek word morphe. The verb used here in Matthew 17, where Matthew says he was transformed as metamorpho'o. It's a form of metamorpho'o. Metamorphothe. 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 I knew you were about to correct me, so thank you for giving me a minute to make that right. So you heard that word, though. You heard that sound? Morphe, metamorpho'o. Metamorpho'o means to transform. So, in other words, he was in the form of God. If you could have seen him, you would have seen God. He took the form of a slave. Here in Matthew 17, his form is changed. Meaning what? Meaning he'd been walking around in the form of a slave, but for a moment, they got just a peek of what he actually looked like from all eternity. And what he actually looked like was blinding light. Blinding, unimaginable, glorious light. That's what they saw. A glimpse of who Jesus was inside of himself. A glimpse of the God aspect of the God-man. The God-nature, I should say. One person, two natures. Fully God, fully man. And they got a glimpse of his glory. And this glory is not simply divine glory. Given that it's incarnate glory, it's the glory of God's king. The king of his kingdom. I take you to Revelation 1. You might just note it down for time. Uh, we're, we're loaded for bear today, but I'll read to you from Revelation 1, 14 and 16. Here's how John sees him as Jesus is about to reveal the future to him and reveal the future about his coming kingdom. And what he sees there is not... It's scary to think he used to lean on that guy's breast at mealtime because in verse 14, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And verse 16 says, and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength, which is what they see here in Matthew 17. This is his glory. And so in Revelation 19, when John sees Jesus actually coming to set up his kingdom, he says his eyes are a flame of fire. Revelation 19.12. So yes, this is, this is the, the glory of his divine nature, but it's also the glory of the nature of the messianic king. Of him as the coming glorious king of God's coming glorious kingdom. This is what they see. Exactly what Jesus promised is exactly what they see. His coming in glory the sort of person he will be when he comes, uh, show himself to be the sort of person he already is, but will be seen to be when he comes to set up his kingdom. So, having seen the side of his glory, now Roman numeral two, let's consider the scope of the king's glory as we have it in this story. The scope of the king's glory. Matthew 17, three through nine. First, we have the witness of men of God in verses three and four. The witness of men of God. 
And the first aspect we have here is something that's amazing, number one. Amazing, verse 3. And look, there were seen by them Moses and Elijah speaking with him. Presumably either Jesus said at the moment or somehow they came to know that this is who was speaking with Jesus. They hadn't gone up into the mountain, but there they were in the mountain. Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. Now I gave it away a few minutes ago. Moses and Elijah were both impressive men of God all by themselves, but, but what did they represent? What did Moses represent? The law. And what did Elijah represent? The prophets. And very often when uh, Jews would refer to the Old Testament, sometimes they'd call it the law of the prophets and the writings, but often they would simply call it the law and the prophets as the two parts of Scripture. And here are the two representatives of these two dispensations of God, these two Uh, uh, um, programs in God's mosaic dispensation. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah, the um, prosecuting attorney for God's law, pressing God's law home on the people. Now keep that in mind. That'll help us understand later, but keep in mind. Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets are speaking with Jesus. And in that amazing sight, we find Peter odd and awful. (laughs) Number two. Just A-W in both those blanks. Odd and awful. Oh, God love him. Peter is so Peter. He's got absolutely nothing to say and is burning to say it. Uh, He just cannot stop himself. He has no idea what to say to this site, but just has to say something. It's it's fascinating to read, uh, not a word I abuse, but it's fascinating to read and think about Mark 9-6. Remember the Gospel of Mark is Peter's preaching. Uh, Mark wrote down Peter's preaching. So the Gospel of Mark is sort of the Gospel of Peter written down by Mark. And so Mark 9.6 is Peter's reminiscence of this moment. Let me read it to you. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. That's Peter's comment. In other words, if I were to say it in modern words, Peter says, Dude, I had no idea what to say. I was terrified. We all were. And yet he says something because in verse 4, Peter in response said to Jesus, Lord, it's a good thing we're here. If you want, I will make here three tents for you one and for Moses one and for Elijah one. Well, we understand his being odd, but his idea is really awful. What is awful about it? When he proposes, I I don't, you know, I, 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 I won't even try to explain why he said this because he himself says, I don't know why I said that. So I can't tell you why he said it. He had to say something. What was he thinking? Well, I'm sure he had good intentions like always, but he wanted to make a tent for Jesus. And it's the same word used for tabernacle. Uh, Tabernacle, that's where God lived, but, but he's going to make one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Well, what could possibly be wrong with that? Puts them all on the same level. Puts them all on the same level. One for you, one for him, one for him. Well, of course, Moses was greatly revered in Israel. Of course, Elijah was greatly revered in Israel. They were both very great men on the level with Jesus. Well, what he said was actually so bad that God the Father interrupted him. (laughs) So the last thing he said, Jesus called him Satan and told him to get back behind him. This thing he says, God the Father cuts him off. Isn't that exactly what we read in verse 5? While he was still speaking? (laughs) So let's get on to the next. Letter B, the witness of God the Father. 
Peter is interrupted by the witness of God the Father in 17, 5 through 8. The witness of God the Father. And first we're confronted by the sight, which is a Shekinah cloud, the, the, the very presence of God in a glory cloud, I would say, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you've got Father, Spirit, and Son here once again. But the text doesn't expressly say that, but the Spirit is the presence of God. And this is a a glory cloud, certainly. While he was still speaking, look, a luminous cloud. Photene, phos is light. Photene, it was a light cloud, a a luminous cloud. A a cloud that instead of uh, cutting off light, itself gave out light and it overshadowed them. I don't take that to mean that it caused shadows. I just means it covered them. It hung over them. It enveloped them. And so a voice, uh, we we next see the sound in verse 5b, the sound. And look, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I take delight. Listen to him. Wow, that word look twice in the same verse. That means Matthew thinks this is a really exciting verse. First he says, look, a luminous cloud overshadowed them. And immediately then he says, and look, without even using a a verb, he says, a voice out of the cloud. A voice out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the beloved in whom I take delight. Listen to him. Well, this is the voice, of course, of God the Father. We'd heard before at the baptism where Jesus was baptized and God the Father owned him out loud publicly. But here again he speaks. Now I read a commentator who said that this voice came for Jesus' sake. I don't at all believe that it came for Jesus' sake. He knew who he was. It came for the apostles' sake. Notice he doesn't address Jesus. He doesn't say, you are my beloved son. Everybody should listen to you. What does he say? This is my beloved son, And then to the apostles, and to you and me, he says, listen to him. So this is for the benefit of the apostles, and couldn't have come at a better time, could it? Because what a pivotal moment. They're at a pivotal moment where the key truth of the coming church has been confessed. Jesus is what? The Christ, that means he's the king, and what? The son of the living God, Peter says. Well, that's what Peter says, and Jesus says he's right. But what do we have here? The Father says he's right. The Father confirms that confession. The Father speaks up and says to the apostles, who are, I don't doubt, still reeling from the twin truths that he's Christ and he's going to Jerusalem, but he's going to die there. Not not reign there, but die there. And the Father says, yep, and this is my son. So you listen to him. Don't correct him. Don't ignore him. Listen to him, the father says. He owns his son as his son. His son in whom he's delighted. He says, this is my son, the beloved. All God's love rests on Christ. Uh, Valerie and I are reading a book that's been a blessing to us thus far. And the writer makes the point, what would you say about God before creation? We think of him as creator, but then what was he before he created? Well, before he created and forever, he was father. He's always been father. He's been the father of Jesus Christ. And he's always loved Christ. To say that God is love, who would he love before creation? Well, the father loved the son. 
This is my son, the beloved. And then he adds, in whom I take delight. Only in the face of Jesus Christ, Jesus, his son incarnate, does he see a man who pleases him in every way and only pleases him. And in his eternal person has always pleased him. He takes delight in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. What, what possible higher testimony would we want than the testimony of God the Father? So in these words, God the Father confirms Peter's confession of Christ. He affirms the foundation of the church that Jesus would build. He witnesses to Christ's person. And, and just think further, friend. This person who, who the Father owns as his son, the beloved in whom he's delighted, it's that person that Israel will hate and reject and spit on and will arrange a mock trial that he might be shamefully murdered by crucifixion. That person in whom God delights, Israel will hate and reject, and the Gentiles will complicitly, no concern, no concern obviously for justice, Gentiles will nail him up for them. And yet, all of this is part of God's kingdom plan. All of this is right here to show us this is all a necessary part of God's kingdom plan. And then the father says, listen to him. Well, I can't hear that listen to him without thinking of Deuteronomy 18. Just note it down for time's sake. But Deuteronomy 18, maybe you're thinking, oh, that's the part where Moses says there, that God will raise up a prophet like him. Yes, it's exactly right. It's a prophecy of Christ. But in Deuteronomy 18.15, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And the next words are, you shall listen to him. And the Greek translation is just about the same thing the Father says here. You must listen to him. And verse 19 underscores that, Deuteronomy 18.19. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name... I myself will require it of him who will not listen to my words which he will speak. So there it is. So this command, listen to the Son. Friend, this, this tells us what pleases God the Father. What can we do that pleases God the Father? Well, it's not building tabernacles and it's not revering saints. Well, the Roman Catholic Church is really big on building tabernacles and, and honoring saints. But what does God the Father want? Listen to Jesus. How many churches are big on that? Building buildings, yep. Elevating individuals and making celebrities, yep. Listening to Jesus, maybe not so much. But that is what pleases the Father. That is what we could do to please the Father. Listen to Jesus. This is the essence of the Christian life. This marks the Christian off from everybody else, that he listens to Jesus. What does Jesus say discipleship is in John 8, 31 and 32? He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Listen to him. That's the mark of a person or a group that pleases God. It listens to Jesus. Third, then, we see the shock in verse 6. The shock. God the Father interrupts Peter from this brilliant shining cloud. And when the disciples heard, they fell upon their face 
and were terribly afraid. I think that's an appropriate response. <laughs> I think that's exactly the right thing to do. They've got nothing to say. Peter does not have a smart thing to say at this point. They are all shut up and they're all prostrate. And they all assume the position, flat on their face on the ground. I tell you, this marks the presence of God and the worship of God and the revelation of God. In the face of God's revelation of His glory in Christ and His speaking and ordering them to listen to Christ, humility, awe, holy fear. And you know, that's a, a good test point. There have been so-called revivals recently in recent years that by biblical standards are nothing like revivals. They're anything but revivals. Here are people barking and screaming and laughing and rolling around and running around and dancing. And you know, if God really was manifesting his presence there in a remarkable way, you know what they would be? Flat on their face and silent. No, that's the mark of the presence of God. Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God, he just said, woe is me. And all he saw was his sin and God's greatness. And so they fell on their face terrified. Number four, let's talk about the sun now in verses seven and eight. They fell on their face and were terribly afraid and they didn't see anything for a while. They had their eyes on the dirt or perhaps even closed. But what do we read in verses 7 and 8? And Jesus came up and he touched them and said, Get up, stop being afraid. And lifting up their eyes, no one did they see except Jesus himself alone. No one did they see except Jesus himself alone. Well, first you just see the kindness and the tenderness of God the Son, don't you? He comes up to them, fear casts them down, but Jesus gently raises them back up. Terror has uh, prostrated them, but Jesus in his kindness brings them back to their feet, and he brings them back with a word of grace. He says, stop being afraid. He gets them up and says, stop being afraid. And, and I, I just would note here, too, that, that Jesus was a toucher. Jesus was one who touched. You read a number of key points where Jesus touches, and, and very often, well, I... I can think of it really every time I can think of offhand. It's, it's surprising that he touches. Who's the first person, at least I can think of him, touching in the Gospel of Matthew? Who does he touch? Someone who says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Who's speaking? A leper who nobody was to touch. But Jesus said, I am willing. Jesus said, I am willing. And he touched him. And then you see Peter touching I'm sorry, you see Jesus touching Peter's mother-in-law who was sick and raising her up. And later you'll see Jesus taking little children into his arms, holding them. And you see Jesus touching the eyes of blind men. Two different occasions in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was a toucher. And he goes up and he gently touches them. He who could stop a storm comes up and touches these terrible men, these terrified men, and tells them to stop being afraid and stands them back up on their feet. And they look around, and where's Moses now? Where's Elijah now? They don't see anybody. They just see Jesus. What's the message of that? Well, turn back to Matthew chapter 5. We've got a number of scriptures to point out, but I do want you to eyeball this one. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Another verse that is very challenging to interpret. 
We spent some time on it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what man is associated with the law? Moses. And what man is associated with the prophets? Elijah. And who did Jesus speak with there? Moses and Elijah. But God spoke and only called one of those people his beloved son. Which one? That would be Jesus. And one person, God said, listen to him. That would be Jesus. Now, don't listen to the law and the prophets. We'll return to that thought later, but no, that's not the thought. Jesus did not come to contradict or tear apart the law and the prophets. He came in fulfillment of what the law and the prophets pointed to. What they pointed to was him. So, if you want to turn there, go ahead. Otherwise, please do write these down and look at them. John 5, 45 through 47. He's, he's uh, in a conflict with the Jewish leaders. And in John 5, 45, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for, what does he say next? He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses pointed to Jesus. If they really listened to Moses, well, they'd listen to Jesus. Paul says wonderfully in Romans 10.4, this is so deep. In Romans 10.4, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end, I'd translate it that he's the culmination of the law. He's the consummation of the law. He's where the law points forward and comes to rest on the person of Jesus Christ. The law points to him. He fulfills it, as he said. In Acts 28, 23, at the end of the book of Acts, what's the last thing we see Paul doing? In Rome, Paul was explaining to the Jewish leaders by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God, the very thing we're thinking about here, and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, how? From both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning to evening, Acts 28, 23. The law and the prophets witness to Jesus. They see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus, but after the Father speaks, there's just Jesus. They've done their service. They've led the way to Jesus. And so now Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is where the law and the prophets pointed. It's to Jesus that we must listen. Finally, Roman numeral 3, we have a puzzled discussion in chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. And this is still on the subject of the kingdom of God because his disciples are still trying to put everything together between what they know of the Old Testament, what they've been taught about the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying. It's not simple. You and I looking from the perspective of uh, a finished canon, uh, we've got it a little better than they did. Um, The picture is complete, as Paul said, but um, they were still trying to assemble this thing. So first we have Christ's command in verse 9. And as they were descending out of the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. A couple of things about that. Well, this is the second time he shut them up, isn't it? And both kind of striking, aren't they? 
in chapter 16 when Peter confessed him as the Christ, the son of the living God, you'd expect him to say, oh, now go tell everybody, but what does he say? Don't tell anybody. And then immediately we see why, because they still don't fully get it. When he talks about his death, Peter's appalled. So they're not ready to talk about this yet. And so here, God has given them this affirmation of the message that they're going to live through and then preach. Uh, but they're not ready to preach it yet. Now is not the time for them to preach it. But two things here. First of all, even after this vision of Jesus glorified, like, like the pure light itself, like the light of the sun. You and I, why, why can we see each other right now? Because we're reflecting light. Jesus didn't reflect light. Jesus gave off light. He was the source of light. And the voice of the Father owning him. And I, Could there have been a little hope in their heart? Oh good, the Father's here. Maybe he's going to fix this part about dying. Maybe, maybe he's going to set us straight on the course for the kingdom. But no... Not at all. After the Father affirms Jesus, what's the next thing He says? Don't tell, any about the, don't tell anybody about this until I've been raised from the dead. Well, if they're not to tell anybody about it until He's raised from the dead, then what's going to have to happen? Well, He's going to have to die. <laughs> For somebody to be raised from the dead, He's pretty much got to be dead first. And so that is still part of the program. And it's part of the program according to God the Son, who the Father just said, what did he say? Listen to him. What does he have to say? I'm still going to die. And then you can tell, afterwards you can tell everyone. And then the other thing I'd like to note about this is how he just says, don't tell anybody about this until after I rise from the dead. Just like he's saying, okay, um, you know, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy some ice cream and some uh, apples. Then I'm going to get some gas in the car. Then I'm going to rise from the dead and then I'm going to mow the lawn. You know, it's just, okay, it's just a thing that's going to happen. There's no doubt in his mind that he's going to rise from the dead. But that's impossible. Nobody's ever done it before. Good thing to have in mind. He said that was going to happen and it's impossible, but it did happen, didn't it? What else do we read that he said he was going to do just before this? He's going to come in his father's glory, judge all men, set up his kingdom. Well, that's impossible too. But the first thing he said that was impossible that was going to happen, that happened. The second thing's going to happen too. Christ's command. Their question though, like I said, they're still working out the sequence of events. So in verse 10, the disciples question him saying, why then do the scribes say that it's necessary for Elijah to come first? If, if you're the Messiah, but Elijah has to come before the Messiah, and you're going to die soon, and there's been no Elijah, obviously you're the Messiah, but how can you be the Messiah if Elijah's supposed to come and Elijah hasn't come? You know, it's a good question. They're not, they're not doubting him. They're just saying, how do we make this make sense? This is the way we've always been taught. And in this case, actually, they were taught correctly. Remember in chapter 23, he says that the, the teachers sit in the, in the seat of Moses, so, so do what they say. When they explain what the Bible says, well, you do that if it's what the Bible says. And they're right about this. I mean, just like with Herod. Herod, the Magi came, Magi came, and Herod asked the Bible, student, Bible scholars, where's the Messiah going to be born? Well, they, they had the right answer. They just didn't care. They didn't go, but they had the right answer. And they were right about this too. Elijah's going to come. So look at, look at Christ's answer in verses 11 
and 12, and it's a little Greek structure that is on the one hand, on the other hand. (laughs) Yes, this, nevertheless, this. And so on the one hand, he says, Elijah will come. Verse 11, he in answer said, on the one hand, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So why does he say that? Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Pretty easy book to find, pretty easy chapter to find. It's just before Matthew. If it's not, then you've got the wrong Bible. But it's supposed to be right before Matthew. So turn to Malachi chapter 4. And it's a really interesting read in this connection. Like I'm going to say that part of the Bible is not that great. So no, I'll never say that. But Malachi 4 is pretty great. God says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. We could just sing this whole chapter from Handel's Messiah, pretty much. And all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them aflame, says Yahweh of hosts. Well, that's just what John the Baptist said back in chapter 3. It'll burn them up like chaff. Oh, how about that? That's interesting. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. What's interesting, isn't it? The son of righteousness. What did Jesus' face become like? The son. All right, read on. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. That's interesting. Moses, we just read about Moses in this chapter. Moses, my servant, even the statutes and judgments which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. That was a high mountain. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah. Well, isn't that interesting? Moses and Elijah together, just like they were in Matthew 17. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. That's challenging to interpret, but it's helpful. And it's also challenging to interpret what Jesus means when he says, Elijah is coming and restore all things. What does he mean by restore all things? I think I can help you. The word he uses for restore is the same Greek word that the translators used in chapter uh, 4, verse 6 of Malachi, that he'll restore the hearts of the children. It's the same verb. So when Jesus says he'll restore all things, I believe he's saying he'll restore all the things that Malachi says he'll restore. And what does Malachi say he'll restore? Well, the hearts of the children to the fathers. And I believe that what he's saying there is he'll make these rebellious, unbelieving children like their believing, faithful fathers. He will, his, under his ministry, their hearts will be changed, restored from rebellious to believing like their fathers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so the scribes were right. This says Malachi's coming before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is Christ's return. So how is, did I say Malachi's coming? Well, I'm sorry. What I meant, that was a test. Uh, it was deliberate. Uh, that Elijah's coming before the day of the Lord, Malachi says. And who else does he mention? He mentions Moses. Now, here's an interesting thing. He says, Jesus says, Elijah will come, but he hasn't yet. The apostles are right. When's he going to come? Well, he's going to come sometime. Now, I think the best idea is that he's one of the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation 11. We won't turn there just now, but note down Revelation 11, 5 and 6. 
where somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, seven years, God says there will be two witnesses, his two witnesses, the two anointed ones who will be his witnesses. And of them, he says this. He doesn't name them, but he does describe them. What does he say? If anyone wishes to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wishes to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the authority to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. What prophet shut up the sky so that it wouldn't rain? Elijah did that. Read on. They also have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. Who turned the waters into blood and struck the earth with plagues? That would be Moses. So it is speculation, but I I believe it's speculation on good ground that these uh, two witnesses are Elijah, who I remind you didn't die, but was taken up in a chariot, and Moses, whose body the Lord took. Uh, when he when he died and presumably did die but they both come in the tribulation so this could be but regardless Jesus says Elijah will come on the one hand but then the next verse he says but on the other I say to you that Elijah already did come yet they did not recognize him but instead did to him as many things as they wished and then he says just to remind them of this point they don't want to be reminded of thus also the son of man is about to suffer at their hands So on the one hand, Elijah will come. On the other hand, he kind of did come. How did he kind of come? Well, uh, just spoiler alert, verse 13 says John the Baptist. So let me back up now. (laughs) Uh, Luke 1.17, when the angel is telling about the birth of John the Baptist and his ministry, Luke 1.17, the angel says, And John will go before him, Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not be Elijah, but go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Ah, there's that work of restoration. And John worked at that work of restoration in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then I remind you of what Jesus said back in Matthew eleven fourteen, talking about John the Baptist. He said, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. But they didn't accept it. They didn't accept his witness to Christ. The people did not go to Christ. The leaders rejected his ministry. And so he did not fulfill that role. So Elijah, I'm sorry, John the Baptist was in the spirit and power of Elijah and had a ministry like Elijah's and went before Jesus as Elijah would. But Elijah is still to come. On the one hand, on the other hand. That's the answer to their question. And so then they understand, verse 13, they comprehended that concerning John the Immerser, he said this to them. The pieces are coming together slowly in their minds. Jesus is going to continue to teach them. They've got a lot of unlearning to do, as well as a lot of learning. But but, uh, Jesus promises in John 14 and 15 and 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and finish the job with them. He still had many things to teach them even at that point, but he said the Spirit will come and lead you into all truth, and he says he will show you what is to come. So they took a while putting the pieces together, but we've got the pieces all put together here by the completion of the writing of the apostles. Uh, And so we have uh, the job finished in uh, the uh, book of Acts, in the letters of the apostles, and in the book of Revelation. So there it is. 
challenging section, but I've observed no injuries. We seem to have made it through it okay. And I think with an even greater and more exalted vision of, of Jesus. Because this is who Jesus is, and this is who Jesus will be. In a way, what we saw there is we saw who Jesus always was from eternity past. But we also see who he's going to be at his coming. From eternity past, well, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And Jesus being in the form of God... He was brilliant glory. He was inexpressible grandeur and majesty. But he didn't count being in the form of God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. But here in this chapter, we just got a glimpse of his glory. We got a peek of his glory. The glory that was always his, but also the glory that will once again be his visibly when he comes with the clouds to set up his kingdom. And he'll come back to Jerusalem again. The first time he came to Jerusalem, he came to die for the sins of his people, to make atonement, to fulfill scripture and the will of the Father. The second time he comes to finish God's program, to set up his kingdom and to rule with a rod of iron, to vindicate his servants and to glorify his Father. So this is who Jesus was. This is who he will be. And notice again, he said he would rise from the dead. Impossible. And yet he did. He says he will come again. Impossible. Yet he will. And you look at Washington in despair, and you look at at, uh, the capitals of every state with despair, you look at the news with despair, but that's not the end of the story. This is the end of the story. The coming of Christ and the kingdom of God is the consummation of the story. So the Father showed us His Son's glory. And showing us His Son's glory, the Father said, listen to Him. So let us fill our eyes with Christ's glory. Let us fill our hearts and our ears with His words. Let us please the Father by listening to His Son. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word and this wonderful narrative that happened on this very same planet that we're walking around on, where years ago, a few men, elect from among the elect, saw a glimpse of Christ's glory and heard your voice owning him as your son, the beloved, in whom you take delight. And Father, it's a wonder to know that, that we who have listened to Christ and who've believed in him, We are in Him, and you delight in us because we're in Him. You love us with the same love with which you loved Him. That's a wondrous thing, to know you as our Father through Christ. And I would pray, as I so often do, for those here who don't know you, with believing parents, but they haven't believed, believing wife or husband, but they haven't believed. Pray that the Spirit of God will open that person's eyes to the glories of Christ and draw him or her to saving faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you're able. We will sing, O Come All Ye Faithful, particularly picked because of verse 2 that that echoes the Nicene Creed. Verse 2 says, True God of true God, light from light eternal. Lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. Amen. Come all ye faithful. Come, all 
comes from 2 Thessalonians 1st chapter. May our God count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all his good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> 